0: This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from MarkFiore.com, Counterspin, The Bugle, The Young Turks, Media Matters, The Progressive, Mumia Abu-Jamal, Comedian Lee Camp, Jim Hightower, and Common Sense with Dan Carlin. And a note for our more sensitive listeners, this episode does contain the subversive opinion that waging war for profit and global hegemony may be less than noble.
1: Tired of all the war in Waziristan? Taliban a little too crazy and religious for your taste? Sounds like you need CIA's Heart and Mind-O-Matic. Commonly called drones, the Heart and Mind-O-Matic is designed for innocent villagers like yourself. If you're caught in the middle, the Heart and Mind-O-Matic will make you absolutely certain which side you're on. We'll win you over by bombing your village, killing your family, and bombing the funeral sure the taliban is crazy but can they do this wait for it wait for it republican invented democrat perfected the heart and mind-o-matic spreads hearts and minds all over the region and with built-in cia constitutional cloaking technology the heart and mind o is virtually invisible in america so you'll enjoy the benefits day after day after day Makes war easier, spreads it around the globe. Let the heart and mind omatic make you absolutely certain which side you're on. Ours, right? Right. The heart and mind matic is available in Afghanistan, Pakistan, Yemen, and other select countries. If you're in the USA, all preceding information must be erased from your hard drive, memory, and consciousness.
2: U.S. government officials don't speak on the record about the CIA drone war in Pakistan. But that changed for a minute on January 30th when President Obama responded to a question about drones and civilian deaths. No, not a question from a mainstream journalist, but from a participant in a live web interview hosted by Google. The New York Times reported the exchange the next day under the headline, Civilian Deaths Due to Drones Are Not Many, Obama Says. That is what he said, but the Times could have pointed out, as they did last August, that the U.S. government's record on this issue does not inspire much confidence. The Times showed that CIA claims that zero civilians had died due to drone strikes were absurd, and the British Bureau of Investigative Journalism reported that the civilian death toll since 2004 could be between 391 and 800, including 168 children. The Wall Street Journal told readers on January 31st that U.S. officials cite a civilian death toll of 60, a number many in Pakistan dispute. The journal also weighed in on the PR question, saying, quote, "...proponents of more disclosure inside the administration and the military argue U.S. secrecy has fueled charges in Pakistan that the drone strikes frequently kill civilians. They say releasing at least some details about the operations will help deflect criticism." Close quote. It's good to hear the thoughts of anonymous proponents of disclosure. In any event, the White House told reporters it was going back to not talking about the drone war.
3: this week, Syria story time. Are you shifting uncomfortably? (laughs) Then I'll begin. Now, you may not have heard much from uh, Syria in the news over the last few weeks, but don't be mistaken, that's not because there's nothing happening there, it's just that it's too f***ing dangerous for journalists to be there at the moment. It's basically the opposite of nothing happening. Everything seems to be happening there as the international community desperately tries to look the other way and turns up some music to try and drown out any of the bangs coming from Damascus. But there may not be enough sand in the world for us to put our heads in for much longer. (laughs) The story so far is this. Last March, when the Arab Spring started boinging around the region excitedly, people in Syria started looking around and saying to each other, Hey, um, this Assad guy that we've been living under for over a decade, does... Anyone else think he might be a (laughs) bit of a dick? (laughs) Then diving for cover as bullets started whizzing past their ears. Uh, The UN estimates that more than 5,400 people have been killed since the unrest began, with more than 100 this last Monday and 37 more uh, last Tuesday alone. Human rights groups say that more than 7,000 people have actually been killed, and the UN replied by saying they actually stopped counting in January, explaining it was too difficult to confirm. Uh, They might be confusing the word difficult with the word depressing there, Andy, but they'd be right either way. (laughs) And that is a bad sign. When the UN stop counting the number of people being killed in your country, you, at the very least, are going to have a house price problem. (laughs) That is the best of your many
4: substantial and immediate problems. A lot of problems uh, in terms of the international community's response to the Syrian problem, uh, the fact that Russia... Uh, does not want to annoy Assad. They don't want to force Assad to do the decent thing and take a bit of a break from treating his own country like an unwanted Christmas gerbil. And the reason for this, John, is perhaps slightly influenced by having $4 billion worth of arms contracts on the (laughs) go with Syria. Now, John, as any good businessman will tell you, when you have a valued customer like that, you have to treat them with respect. (laughs) If they're having a little bit of trouble, you cut them some slack. Whether that trouble is in their personal life, or financial trouble, or having a mass rebellion to deal with and 7,000 civilians Death to explain. The customer is always right, John. Particularly when that customer buys 10% of your global
3: arms exports. Yeah, that—that that is basically the Russians' response. The customer is always right, and uh, and with the rate at which Syria is using weapons against itself, it's literally become a boom industry for the <laughs> Ruskies. Now, you might think, well, hold on, hold on. Are the Russians not directly in contravention of the arms embargo to Syria? To which the Russians would say two things. One, shut the f- up. Who asked you to open your f***ing face? And two, They would argue, as they are, that they're simply fulfilling existing contracts, not signing any new ones. See Andy? They're just respecting contractual (laughs) law. They're just protecting their eBay seller rating. They don't want Syria to give them a bag review and mess up their blemishless five-star average. They don't want to read Syria writing online, very disappointing service. We had an agreement for $550 million of fighter jets. But at the last minute, they refused to deliver them, citing some bullshit about what I might use them for. Not recommended. Avoid at all costs.
4: (laughs) Thus far, the international community's response to Syria has been as decisive and dogmatic as a dog's response when asked to play snooker. Confused, not fully understanding what it's supposed to be doing, held back by logistical concerns, but prepared to pose for pictures to make make it look like it's
3: actually doing something. (laughs) On a... On Saturday, the Arab League announced that it was suspending its month-old monitoring mission inside Syria because it was getting too dangerous. And again, Andy, that's not good. When an organisation whose only job is to monitor violence flees the country because it got too violent, you may want to consider calling it the f*** down a bit. (laughs) The UN, thankfully as you mentioned, it has stepped up with its normal speed and has leapt straight into action a mere ten months after the trouble (laughs) started and has decided to act decisively by talking about what they might do, hypothetically, if their talking proves successful. So don't worry, Syria. Help is on its way. Because when the UN starts talking, they can get things done at the speed of light. The speed of very slow,
4: painfully (laughs) dim light. The Russian ambassador has described the United Nations negotiations as uh, a roller coaster. Uh, in other words, it ended up exactly where it started, after lots of high-pitched shouting, at the end of which everyone felt a bit sick. And the, the sticking point was whether the council should fully support the Arab plan uh, to basically encourage Assad to step aside, or whether they should simply note it. And Western states uh, wanted fully uh, to fully support it, Russia wanted to just note it. So... Good one, Russia. Noting stuff has a f***ing illustrious history of stopping mass violence, as Churchill would testify. We will note them on the beaches. We will note them in the hills. We will note them on the notepads and the noteboards. And we will never, ever stop noting stuff. We may start doodling if our mind gets distracted a bit.
3: The, The Security Council has been negotiating a resolution all week and has been unable to come to an agreement. The wording of the statement has already been heavily watered down uh, in, an, uh, in an attempt to uh, overcome these Russian objections. Uh, Russia does not like the resolution's proposed threat of, and I quote, further measures if Syria does not comply with demands. I guess further measures just wasn't vague enough for the Russians, Andy. <laughs> they somehow wanted even less semantic specifics. <laughs> Maybe they need to come up with a brand new word in the English language that is completely devoid of any meaning whatsoever. Whatsoever. The, uh, the Russian UN envoy said, we hope that the council will come to consensus on the Syria issue, as it is not only possible, but also necessary. Except the problem was that China then objected to that statement, saying that possible and necessary were far too strong to use as words, and that plausible and nice would be better. <laughs> A consensus would be plausible and nice. Something watered down so much that at that point, you're literally just drinking water. <laughs> In fact, the new proposed text, that still has no agreement, drops any explicit calls for President Assad to yield powers whatsoever. In fact, the wording that they've agreed on so far is this. People of Syria... We want to help you, but we can't. Except we can, but we won't. But we'd like to, but not really. We just need to reach an agreement, which we will, except we won't, because we can't. Except we could, but we don't want to. Except part of us does. It's complicated, apart from the fact that it isn't. But don't worry, except do. Because things are terrible, except they'll be fine, apart from the fact that they won't be. But it's okay, because it's not too bad. Except it is.
4: (laughs) The previous wording... Of the proposed resolution supported a transition to, uh, and I quote, a democracy, a plural political system in which citizens are equal regardless of their affiliations or ethnicities or beliefs. And amongst the co-sponsors of this proposed resolution were Saudi Arabia, (laughs) where the word citizen means not a woman. And where citizens are equal provided that their affiliations not include being affiliated to ovaries, their ethnicity does not involve coming from ladyland, and their beliefs (laughs) do not involve believing that it is perfectly acceptable to have two X-chromosomes. So, oh, this, that's the wonderful world of international politics. The British ambassador to the United Nations uh, said it is glaringly obvious that transferring weapons into a volatile and violent situation is irresponsible and will only fuel the bloodshed before turning to his research assistants and saying, now are you absolutely sure that we, Britain, have never done anything like that? Never? <laughs> Good, because the last thing I want to be called is a hypocrite. Hang on, what are those people shouting at me? Do I have a chucking hippo kit? Well, I've got a big catapult, will that do?
0: dollars a month or even fifty five dollars a year members also gain access to bonus audio and video content that doesn't make it into the show itself so for a concrete way to support a strong progressive voice please visit the membership tab at best of Did
5: the latest from syria over the weekend over 200 killed in homes and uh now uh, on monday morning we got reports that another 50 had been basically slaughtered uh, there has been violent bombardment throughout the day and uh they are firing their rockets into the cities and it's uh, by most accounts a, a massacre and uh so of course there are a great number of people that are irate over this issue as they should be uh there was a security council vote and uh to give credit to the americans and the europeans they were on the right side here and You know, it's not not an incredibly strong resolution. It's not to take action. It's not to take military efforts. It's simply to say that the sanctions should be stronger and that the Arab League proposal to have Assad step down and have a unity government led by his vice president is the way to go. So it's not a particularly strong resolution, but Russia and China blocked it anyway. So their actions here have been reprehensible. uh, When, you know... You're, and of course the one uh, government that totally agrees with Russia and China is Iran all three are incredibly happy to suppress uh, democratic movements within those countries and apparently if you uh you know uh, protest those governments and the government does a violent crackdown China agrees Russia agrees Iran agrees that is not the right side to be on uh here's what uh, uh US Secretary of State Hillary Rodham Clinton had to say quote, we will exp- work to expose those who are still funding the regime and sending out weapons to be used against defenseless Syrians, including women and children. We will work with the friends of a democratic Syria around the world to support the opposition's peaceful political plans for change. And then when she was talking about the United Nations vote, again, it was 13 to 2, the Russians and the Chinese vetoing, she said, quote, what happened yesterday at the United Nations was a travesty. And a spokesperson for David Cameron in uh, the UK was equally harsh. Quote, Russia and China are protecting a regime which is killing thousands of people. We find their position both incomprehensible and inexcusable. By supporting that regime, they're strengthening it and allowing it to continue with that violence. Now you have to give some credit here uh, to the European powers and the U.S., because Assad had basically quietly not caused any trouble for Israel and hence uh, they really didn't bother with him too much to be honest and plus they don't have oil in Syria so there's no way anybody's gonna do any military action but at least you know in the face of these massacres they at least have the nerve to say hey you know what you shouldn't do that and we should strengthen sanctions against you and there should be a new government Russia and China won't even go that far it's despicable Now. Are we actually going to do something about it? <laughs> of course, we're not going to. Let's listen to President Obama on this.
0: I think it is very important for us to try to resolve this without recourse to uh, outside military intervention. I think that's possible.
5: So, uh, no outside military intervention. Uh, there are reports from um, you know the people on the ground uh, that are getting killed, saying that uh, will anybody help us? We're, literally, we're dying out here, and there are reports of body parts uh, found throughout the cities. And unfortunately, the answer is apparently help is not on the way. Uh, and it's it's look, I don't know that going into Syria is the right thing to do, um, but it, it's as you see the pictures in the video, it, it's a little, it's a it's not a little, it's a lot sickening, and uh, and it's frustrating. Uh, We should at least do the bare minimum. Can we not do that? But apparently, the Russians and the Chinese think it is too much to ask for.
3: Syria update now, and well, the update in Syria, Andy, really can be distilled down to this. Oh boy. Oh boy. Andy, when I say oh, you say boy. <laughs> oh. Boy. Oh. Boy. Yeah, that's basically it. That basically (laughs) encapsulates what's happened in Syria in the last seven days. As we predicted last week, China and Russia vetoed the UN resolution to prevent violence in Syria. So, you know, we were right, Andy. They vetoed it. We were right. It's always good to be right, isn't it? And what was the prize for being right? People being murdered on the street in the Syrian city of Homs.
4: Pretty shit prize, Andy. That is a bad prize. Shit prize! That is like the prize that we had a couple of years ago two free tickets to my show. um arguably worse actually. uh one uh, man from Homs quoted uh, in an interview uh said these words where is the united nations where is the humanity where is america isn't america supposed to defend humanity isn't the un supposed to defend humanity are we animals dying here are we supposed to live like this our whole lives uh heart cry of desperation anyway i took this on and i've actually contacted the united nations and i do have some answers to those questions oh no uh, where is the un uh, it's in new york mostly <laughs> oh, no. if you meant where the un was with regard to the slaughter in homes it's still in new york <laughs> where is the humanity The UN says, we're not sure. We lent it to the Libyan rebels and they seem to have mislaid it. If they find it, we'll get back to you ASAP and try to forward what's left onto you. Or ask the Russians and the Chinese. They must have quite a lot in reserve. They certainly haven't been using much. I think they might be stockpiling the humanity and they're going to splurge out in one bonanza of humanity sometime. Where is America? Answer, none of your business. spending some quality time with itself. Isn't America supposed to defend humanity? Answer, Yes and no. Ideally yes, but no if it defends humanity the way it's often defended it in the past. And it depends where that humanity is. If it's in Rwanda, then no. Isn't the UN supposed to defend humanity? Ditto. But it's hard trying to defend humanity when the Russians are defending defending humanity themselves. Are we animals dying here? Answer, the UN advises that during periods of intense bombing. Please keep your pets indoors. The banks will make them jumpy. Are we supposed to live like this our whole lives? Answer, how long is a piece of string?
6: Oh
3: andy that was that was painfully funny and painful
4: (laughs) i'll take that as a compliment (laughs) Uh,
3: syria certainly did russia and china and itself no favors it was hard enough to justify uh, the veto and syria even started bombing homs before the vote was taken. To which I'm pretty sure Russia responded, Jesus Christ, (laughs) can you not just wait six hours until this vote has actually happened? You're killing me here. Metaphorically, obviously, you're literally killing your own people in their hundreds, which I, Russia, incidentally, have no problem with. It's just, there's an etiquette to doing these things, Syria. (laughs) Don't start firing until my veto has given you the green light. What are we, barbarians?
1: This is the Media Matters Minute, I'm Lisa Reed. Fox News figures are lambasting President Obama as weak for apologizing to Afghans after U.S. military personnel burned copies of the Quran. Here's former Bush aide and current Fox contributor Carl Rove.
7: The president has, I think, unnecessarily apologized, uh, you know, abjectly apologized to the Afghan government for this. And uh, look, it was a mistake, but we made it worse by showing weakness, and we've already shown plenty of weakness in Afghanistan and elsewhere around the globe because of this.
1: But Rowe failed to mention that in 2008, President Bush apologized to Iraqi Prime Minister Nuri al-Maliki after an American sniper used a Quran for target practice in a predominantly Sunni area west of Baghdad. The president's press secretary at the time, Dana Perino, who is also now a Fox contributor, said they were taking the situation, quote, very seriously.
8: Today is International Women's Day, and I can't help but think of the rationale that the U.S. government used to invade and occupy Afghanistan. It wasn't just to get bin Laden, who quickly fled to Pakistan anyway. No, it was also, we were told, to free the oppressed women of Afghanistan. And yes, they were brutally oppressed by the Taliban, but they're still being oppressed today. And the Karzai government, a government of our own making, is actively participating in that oppression. Last week, Afghanistan's Islamic Council issued an edict that said, and now I'm quoting, men are fundamental and women are secondary. It said women need to wear the full hijab and not to mingle with men in schools or businesses. It said women can't go outside unless accompanied by a male. And it said men could beat their wives for Sharia compliant reasons. What does this have to do with Karzai, you might ask? Well, Karzai's office posted the edict on the president's website and Karzai himself endorsed it at a press conference. So, after more than 10 years of U.S. war and occupation there, after the loss of more than 1,800 U.S. soldiers there, the U.S. is now supporting a government that officially declares women to be second-class citizens. That's nothing to celebrate on International Women's Day. I'm Matt Rothschild, and that's how I see it.
9: We have plowed and we have planted, we have gathered into barns, done the same work as the men with babies in our arms but you won't find our stories in most history books you read we were there we're still here fighting for the things we need we were there in the factories we were there in the mills we were there in the mines and came home to fix the we're there on the picket lines. We raised our voices loud. It makes me
3: proud just knowing we're there. Afghan lady news now. And, what well, Afghan women have got it pretty sweet, Andy, where access to heroin is concerned. <laughs> Unfortunately, <laughs> where everything else is concerned, they are in an oppressive whirlpool of pain. Uh, While well, things have certainly improved for women since the Taliban ran the country, well, you know, not... They didn't run the country so much as they gripped the country in a fist (laughs) and squeezed it until the pips came out. Uh, But, unfortunately, regarding the Taliban and their attitude towards women, uh, there are fears that that particular reactionary rooster may be coming back home to roost. Uh, The Taliban attitude towards women is literally prehistoric, as we all know, in that they think women should live in caves and be beaten with sticks. (laughs) And their Moorish misogyny is rearing its bearded head. With the news that the Afghan government has requested that female television presenters don headscarves and avoid heavy makeup, uh, which has pissed off journalists who argue that the move is proof the authorities expect the Taliban to regain a share of power when the Americans
4: leave. There is a slight angle on this story, John, in that apparently um, female television presenters in Afghanistan were already wearing headscarves and avoiding heavy makeup. Right. <laughs> and it was really, this is the suggestion that the government is just pandering. To the Taliban. It's not as if Afghan lady newsreaders had been coming on telly looking like Joan Collins in Dynasty. This, <laughs> this, They'd be pretty much keeping things under control. I mean, I, I mean it's just, I, I've never really liked the Taliban, John. I mean, I, mm. I don't want to offend easy, any, easy any easy. Taliban easy. fan. I don't think I'm going out on too much of a limb here. <laughs> but And I, I would personally wouldn't vote for them unless they promised me at least a 2p. In the pound income tax cut. And that, you know, for someone living in a Western democracy, that is about as hostile as it's possible to get. But they just don't seem like the kind of guys, John, who'd be much fun on an evening out in the snooker club, the Taliban. They, they just sit there in the corner complaining about how colourful the balls were and then casually leafing through a catalogue of global artistic monuments and circling the ones they'd most like to knock down. Just not my kind of people, John. As the old Frank Sinatra song goes, Taliban and women's rights go together like a horse and a French restaurant. <laughs> If I'd had your vocal range, I could have sung that, John. I just
3: don't understand why you didn't. It's not about singing it well, Andy. It's about singing it loudly and with confidence. Uh. Uh, There have been many, many examples of pressure on the press in Afghanistan over the last year, including throwing acid on a veteran Afghan journalist and preventing a Turkish soap opera from being aired. And presumably, those are the two ends of that particular suppressive spectrum. Preventing a soap opera from being on TV and throwing acid in someone's face is a situation escalating very quickly.
0: but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be.
10: We
5: have tragic news out of Afghanistan. Uh, One of our uh, troops uh, in the Panjwai district in the Kandahar province went at 3 in the morning and opened fire on civilians in several different houses. He is from the Joint Base Lewis-McChord in Washington State originally. He's done several rounds in Iraq, and this was his first time being deployed to Afghanistan. He was working with the Green Berets and the Navy SEALs, ironically, on a village stability operation. My guess is those villages are far more unstable now. Uh, of the 16 people killed, uh, unfortunately, uh, nine were children, three were women. This is tragic, any way that you strike it, of course. Uh, and the two villages involved were uh, Balandi and Al Kozai. Uh, one family had 11 members wiped out in, in just that family alone. Of course, we have apologized profusely. General John Allen, top U.S. commander in Afghanistan, says that there will be a rapid and thorough investigation. President Obama says that it does not represent. The exceptional character of our military and the respect that the United States has for the people in Afghanistan. Uh, the parliament in Afghanistan is calling for a quick public trial of the suspect. We are, of course, saying that we have him under custody and will go through due process uh, as soon as possible. First thing is to try to figure out why in the world he did this. Uh, and the Taliban has taken advantage of this to say that Americans are, quote, sick minded American savages. Well, you know that we've accomplished our mission in Afghanistan. When the Taliban is calling us savages, and the fact, the 16 civilians are killed, uh, including so many women and children, leads you to wonder what in the world we're doing there. And so, uh, as this is an absolute uh, disaster, and remember last time around when there was the 30 people killed because there had been a burning of the Koran, I said that uh, I wasn't sure that the president should apologize for that because it was an accident this is not an accident this is not just burning of some piece of paper This is killing sixteen innocent civilians this is as bad as it gets and so now I suspect our job in Afghanistan as hard as it was has gotten exponentially harder to the point where I believe it is largely undoable and I it's not that that's a new belief for me I didn't think that it was doable to begin with in terms of uh, being able to rebuild Afghanistan in our image the original uh motivation for us going into Afghanistan, of course, was to root out the Taliban and to get bin Laden. We rooted out the Taliban fairly quickly. We spent another 10 years there. We got bin Laden. So there's less than 50 Al-Qaeda left in Afghanistan according to our intelligence. So bin Laden is dead, al-Qaeda is gone, Taliban is rooted out. The longer we stay, actually, because of acts like this, the stronger the Taliban get. Let me give you some stunning numbers from Afghanistan. When they asked 15 to 30 year old men in the two southern provinces we are trying to get under control uh, if they knew what 9 11 was. In other words, do you have any idea why the Americans are here? 92% of respondents said they had no idea what 9 11 was. And uh, one of the teachers that they asked, this is one of the teachers, said he didn't know what it was either. He thought maybe it had something to do with a fire in America and said, but probably the americans said it as an excuse to invade afghanistan we're doing great there so the people that are fighting us have no reason why have no idea why we're down there to begin with and they're fighting us cuz we're there okay so uh they've caught on to how ridiculous this is and by the way to give you a sense of how uh, hard it is uh to get that message through are you, 42% of the afghan population is under the age of 14 72% are illiterate but don't worry we're going to turn afghanistan around right away and they're going to know exactly why we're there and they're going to know also that we're there to help them by the way the russians said the same exact thing and it's an outrage to compare us to the soviet union except for the fact that the soviet union their strategy for holding afghanistan was build bridges and and schools and hospitals so you go in their hearts and minds had that work out for the russians not very well okay it was their vietnam but yet we foolishly go on. Well, that must be because we live in a democracy, and our, uh, the American people are in favor of it, right? Wrong again, Bob. Uh, recent poll out: six in ten Americans say that the American, uh, that Afghanistan has not been worth fighting. Period. Forget Bin Laden. Forget getting out the Taliban. Not worth fighting at all. I was originally in favor of going in Afghanistan to accomplish some of those things that we did accomplish. Some of them a long, long time ago. Apparently, now I am to the right of most of the American people. 60% say, no, 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 I don't care what the reason was, not worth fighting, okay? And the numbers get worse. Should we withdraw? 54% say we should withdraw immediately. Not, hey, well, we're gonna do some training of the Afghan forces until 2014, and then, it, by the way, I don't know if you know this, there's actually uh, negotiations going on right now with our government in Afghanistan to actually stay till 2024. 2014 is when we withdraw our combat divisions, but we are arguing that we should keep 25,000 men on bases in Afghanistan until 2024, whereas 54% of the American people say withdraw immediately. And by the way, the question was framed as in, shouldn't we finish our objective in training the afghan forces as we're doing this withdrawal and the answer was still hell no immediately alright and then uh, the drawdown of u.s. forces that began last year are you in favor of it seventy eight percent of americans saying yes get out get out get out And yet we stay there, these disasters happen, and then they will turn around and say, well, that's what happens in the middle of war. Nothing you can do about it. You know, it's tragic, but it happens. Well, that's why we don't want to be in the middle of that war. It is completely and utterly senseless. I am with the American people and not our politicians. Get out immediately.
11: of Haditha. For those in on the carnage, that is the Iraq War, the term Haditha tells it all. Haditha is not a person, it is a place, a village in Iraq, where U.S. soldiers went on tilt, killing several dozen Iraqis, men, women, and babies. The Haditha massacre happened six years ago, but it wasn't formally resolved until several weeks ago, when an American sergeant, Frank Wouterich, got off, virtually scot-free. Charges against most were dropped and one soldier won acquittal. To call it a whitewash would be an understatement. It seems that now that a formal U.S. troop withdrawal has been declared, there is no longer a need for the PR of seeming to have a fair trial when Americans kill innocent Iraqis. If anybody believed Americans went to Iraq to help them, Haditha erases that lie. Within weeks of Haditha's resolution, One U.S. soldier goes on tilt in Afghanistan, spraying civilians, going house to house, killing some 16 people at least. As in Iraq, so in Afghanistan. An imperial army invades, armed with words like democracy, human rights, women's rights, and stopping torture. Then Haditha happens. Then Abu Ghraib happens. Then Kabul happens. In fact, empire happened. And we are all Watching its degeneration as we speak. Afghanistan, Iraq. Is Iran next? From imprisoned nation. This is Mumia Abu Jamal.
8: It's time, it's way, way past time for the U.S. to get out of Afghanistan. The grotesque massacre on Sunday by a U.S. soldier only underscores the point. The massacre was almost inevitable. When you have 100,000 soldiers under stress in a foreign country where they're not wanted, when you got soldiers on their fourth tour of duty, as this one was, who spent three tours in Iraq, at some point someone's going to break. And what a horrific break it was. Hunting down villagers door to door, killing 16 people, nine of them children, and burning some of their bodies, it doesn't get worse than this. But the massacre is just the latest in a long and bloody string of unnecessary deaths. Just two days before, for instance, NATO helicopters killed four civilians and wounded three. And the drones have taken an awful toll in Afghanistan as well. The Afghan people have had more than enough. Since the U.S. invaded ten and a half years ago, U.S. forces have been responsible for the deaths of between 9,000 and 29,000 Afghan civilians. This latest massacre, on top of all those other deaths, plays into the hands of the Taliban, which prides itself on fighting the occupiers. We must end the occupation, end the bidding for a permanent military presence there, and let the Afghan people decide their own fate. I'm Matt Rothschild. And that's how I see it.
9: News that a U.S. staff sergeant went on a killing spree in an Afghan village broke on March 11th and was covered extensively for days afterward. The death toll was 16 civilians, nine of them children. The suspect shot and stabbed some of the victims, according to reports, and attempted to set some of the bodies on fire. Some of the most startling media reactions treated this horrendous crime as a problem for the war and those waging it. The massacre was a public relations headache and a public relations disaster, according to the Associated Press and Reuters. Killings threaten Afghan mission was a USA Today headline. On the NPR website, reports were headlined Killings a Blow to U.S. Strategy in Afghanistan and Afghan Shootings Could Complicate U.S. Mission. The New York Times talked about a feeling of siege here among western personnel. The real victim from the sound of it is the U.S. war. Some of this is not exactly new. Dead Afghans have previously been presented as a problem for the U.S. occupation. Still, it is difficult to fathom the lack of humanity on display. Politicians making the rounds of the Sunday shows when the news broke said things like, Unfortunately, these things happen in war. That was Republican Senator Lindsey Graham's reaction. Democrat Chuck Schumer affirmed that the president has a good plan, and he added that it's a very difficult situation because we have real terrorism that emanated from Afghanistan. Another Republican ended his comments about the atrocity by saying, I'm really proud of what our kids are doing there. Apparently, it is too much to expect that the dominant reaction after a grisly atrocity should involve sympathy for its victims, rather than pride in the forces whom the perpetrator belonged to.
12: your moment of clarity from LeeCamp.net. The question is, why can't America keep its missiles in its pants? The war in Afghanistan continues on in an unreported, quiet sort of death and destruction, like a family of cannibals who move the gruesome killing to the basement so the civilized dinner party can continue without interruption. Historically speaking, we have been involved in more wars for fun, profit, shits, and giggles than we have for necessity. So why can't we keep our missiles in our boxer shorts? Because There's too much money to be made from it. There is lots and lots of cash in building bombs and helicopters, cargo ships and oil pipelines and taking the resources from faraway lands. A Chris Christie-sized pile of money. There's very little money in love and peace and being good to each other. I once tried to open a a hugs booth here on the street corner, and I figured if a single missile costs roughly a million dollars, then I will only have to charge like a mere, you know, $3,200 for a hug. But the business was a, a flop. It didn't do well at all. This is why you've heard of the free hugs campaign, because that's the going rate for a hug. Free. Not even a fucking nickel. But war is not sold to us as a profit-making machine, is it? It's sold to us as a necessity, an absolute need to protect us from bad guys. Our defense department struts out every five years or so and says, Holy flying batshit, Batman! We have no choice but to bomb Iran. It's the only way to keep us safe. You know how we've been grabbing your balls at the airport? Well, that's not enough anymore. We have to blow their balls, clean off their bodies. It's the only way. They should end that speech with, Oh yeah, we're gonna make a shitload of money too, and then run off giggling like schoolgirls. General Smedley Butler, one of the most decorated marines of all time, had this to say after his service was through. He said, I helped make Mexico safe for American oil interests, I made Haiti and Cuba a decent place for the National City Bank boys, I helped in the raping of a half a dozen Central American Republics for the benefit of Wall Street, I helped purify Nicaragua for the International Banking House of Brown Brothers, I brought life to the Dominican Republic for sugar interests, and made Honduras ripe for American fruit companies. Saw to it that Standard Oil went about their business unmolested. I might have given Al Capone a few hints. The best he could do was operate his racket in three city districts. We operated on three separate continents. And if a guy with a name like Smedley tells you you're fighting too much, you take that shit pretty seriously. Hey, this is Lee Camp. I hope you've enjoyed having my Moment of Clarity rants pumped into your skulls. If you have, you would almost definitely love my free Moment of Clarity backstage podcast where I discuss the topics of the day. You know, the little things like the corporate raping and pillaging of our world. I also have on fun, awesome guests like this lady.
3: My name is Janine Garofalo.
12: This guy. Hi, I'm John Oliver. Even sometimes this guy.
13: This is Greg Pallas and I've got my zipper caught in Moments of Clarity.
12: Free at Lee Camp. LeeCamp.net, iTunes, Stitcher, or the Android app. Plus, there's a Moment of Clarity book for those of you who thought, I love Moment of Clarity, but I hate how I can't lick it. Well, now you can. The Moment of Clarity book and ebook get it at LeeCamp.net or on most e-reader platforms. And remember, keep fighting and stay angry.
10: A citizen's willingness to speak truth to power is essential for the well-being of a democracy. Equally essential, though, are citizens willing to risk their personal well-being by standing up to speak truth about power. Meet Lieutenant Colonel Danny Davis, a 48-year-old career Army man who fought in our two Iraq wars and has had two year-long deployments in the Afghanistan war. He's often seen top commanders try to put a positive spin on a negative military situation. But in our Afghanistan quagmire, Davis saw that the candor gap had become a chasm, going from spin to outright lies. Last year, he heard the top U.S. commander in Afghanistan tell Congress that the Taliban's momentum there had been arrested and that our mission was, quote, on the right azimuth to succeed. That went against everything Davis himself was experiencing, and most significantly, it defied what casualty statistics were revealing. You can't spin the fact that more men are getting blown up every year, he says. So Davis became a whistleblower, going to the media and Congress in January and writing a scathing article in the Armed Forces Journal that asked pointedly, How many more men must die in support of a mission that is not succeeding? Lieutenant Colonel Davis knows that he's now in a rough spot, having bluntly spoken truth about the powers who are many ranks above him. I'm going to get nuked, he says resignedly. Indeed, a Naval War College ethics teacher has already denigrated Davis as an underling who thinks that he knows better than the brass. He's gone outside the channels, sniffed the ethicist, and he's taking his chances on what happens to him. This is Jim Hightower saying, Yes, he is, Professor. And America needs more stand-up, truth-telling patriots like Danny Davis, who have the guts to go outside channels when necessary.
12: Where should I begin? The only thing I thought of was the end. It's a new wave of ecstasy, seeing things that you shouldn't see when they're right there under your skin think back things i've tried think again it's not too wise.
13: here's the way i look at it folks and i think the silver lining here might be an, an incredible boon for the country it's almost like some sort of a weird buddhist parable though i mean you know sometimes opportunities for change Come in the strangest sort of disguise, you know, like national bankruptcy. If you can't afford stuff that we probably shouldn't be doing because it's probably bad for us, but it's impossible to give up, and you have to give it up through no choice of your own, might that not be a positive thing? You know, here, let me explain this, and again, take this with a grain of salt, okay? Because I had to write a paper about this in middle school. And I got a C- minus by the skin of my teeth on this subject, so I may not know what I'm talking about. But this reminds me so much of like a poison crown. You know, the Second World War happens, and the United States is sort of crowned with global leadership or leadership of the free world, is what we called it at the time, right? To sort of highlight this um, giant war of humanity between the free world and the non-free world. And the crown seems like this wonderful thing. The United States has been granted what a lot of people at times say, well, we deserve it, you know, this is what you get for being liberty and the champion of the freedom of the humanity, blah, 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 blah. Okay, well, the crown's poisoned. The paper I got a C- minus on by the skin of my teeth in middle school was about the Lord of the Rings, J.R.R. Tolkien's classic, right? And the reason I got the C- minus was apparently I didn't get any of the sub themes right or understand the themes. But when I look at it now, the whole theme of the ring is the, and, you know, people are going to listen to me and go, Dan, you're an idiot. That's the main theme and you never got it. But the whole theme of the of the ring of power being something that seems like this unbelievable gift. How did this fall? We're so graciously lucky that this fell into our hands and maybe even we secretly deserved it. And... Forget about, you know, any bad that's been done in the past with any power like this. We're going to use this power for good. And then it turns a good, upstanding, admirable hobbit into something that's a, you know, caricature of what it used to be, a negative caricature. I'm not saying the United States is Gollum at the moment. I'm just suggesting it's a lot more Gollumish than it used to be. And I think that the ring of power, so to speak, the global hegemony is the reason for this. And that our inability to afford all of this now may be the only logical way you can break an addiction to, you know, the military industrial complex and all the things it does for us. I mean, people on my board were saying, you'd be you'd be really sorry if it went away. You think you're hemorrhaging jobs now, you know, do away with, uh, you know, Raytheon and those people and you'll be sorry. I'll tell you what, though, folks, do you think and I could be wrong about this, too. Do you think Americans, if you told them. That the reason we have to keep the kind of foreign policy we have now, the reason we have to intervene in all these countries in the world, the reason we have to send our soldiers to fight and die and have long term problems in these conflicts is because if we don't, our economy won't be good. We all might pay more at the pump. Your taxes might be higher. Your life might not be as prosperous if we don't go to other countries and violently. You know, deal with people there. Now, I could be wrong, but I don't think Americans are going to listen to that and go, you know what? You're right. We're more like the ancient Assyrians and we're going to involve ourselves in the world because wars can be made to pay if they're fought correctly. And spending on weapons that kill people are great for our economy, so we're all in. I think there's a contingent of Americans that might go for that. But here's how you know it wouldn't play all that well in the heartland because, folks... If it would, we'd sell it that way. We wouldn't be talking about, well, we're going to overthrow a murderous dictator and weapons of mass destruction and all this. We'd say, hey, we need to go into Iran or your taxes are going to go up. On second thought, if that was the argument openly, I might be even more afraid for the Iranian people. That might be a tough decision for some people. I guess (laughs) just see Fox News. Fox News poll shows 80% of Fox News listeners would rather bomb Iran than see their taxes go up. I don't know. Just guessing. I think, ladies and gentlemen, that these sorts of financial perfect storms that are hitting the United States or about to hit the United States or will hit the United States soon or whatever, provide opportunities. Opportunities that would not otherwise be there if we had to depend on our, you know, political system to deliver them. And the opportunities aren't just in things like, you know, global world preeminence and leadership and all that. The fact that, you know, nationally speaking, our, wallet is going to be lighter than normal, is going to, I hope, provide a little chance to rebalance our portfolio in a number of different ways. You know, when your budget shrinks, you tend to look a little bit more harshly, you know, at what you need to keep and what you can do away with and where there's just too much inefficiency and waste to put up with stuff anymore. A perfect example is something that Samuelson talks about in this article a lot. Medicare and Medicaid these are what pass for you know government health care here in the united states horribly expensive terrible growth rates and something that in any other industrialized country in the world they would look at and laugh and maybe they do both of those programs along with veteran affairs um health care and all that stuff should be part of one system we spend more on health care in this country than any place else by a long shot and we don't get anywhere near the value for it. That's something you can get away with when times are flush. When all of a sudden we're looking for efficiency wherever we can get it, the way the system is now seems horribly inefficient. And while you may get people who say, we need to cut back on Medicare and Medicaid because we can't afford it anymore, if you don't somehow put something in to do the job that they're doing, it ain't going to do anything. You're going to have people in the emergency rooms and then you're going to have a conversation about, well, can we let's pass a law that says we can turn people away from emergency rooms and throw them out on the street, which from what I understand happens somewhere anyway. I mean, eventually you're going to hit a point where people go, we're not going to throw people out to die on the street if they don't have the proper medical insurance and less and less people have the medical insurance and blah, blah. Folks, I guess what I'm saying is, We can have these, we have the luxury of having these sort of debates now. That luxury is ending because kicking the can down the road is a failed strategy now that the road is ending. And the fact that the road is ending looks like a terrible thing if keeping things like that ring of power are absolutely, you know, vitally important to you. And of course, ask Gollum about that. He didn't want to give up the ring of power, and neither do we. But, of course, anybody reading the story from a third-person perspective, not in the you know position of a golem, can see, hey, wait a minute. The best thing that creature could do is throw that ring in the nearest river. Get as far away from it as possible. It's killing him. He can't see it, but he's not supposed to, folks. There's a great interview that was conducted um, during the Nuremberg War Trials with... Um, you know, very high-level member of Hitler's government, Hermann Göring. And Göring had this interview with a U.S. intelligence operative who was also a psychologist um, while awaiting the verdict in the trial. And Göring was explaining, you know, this dichotomy that we talked about at the very beginning, this dichotomy between... You know, what's good for the country on the history book level stage, you know, being the colossus astride the world, militarily speaking, and the interest of the average person on the ground. And let's be honest, a lot of the people who have to actually go fight and die and suffer to make that history book, you know, story for the future. And here's how the conversation goes down between Goring and this interviewer while he's awaiting his verdict and eventually to be hanged and he'll commit suicide instead. Here's the conversation. This is in the voice of the interviewer writing, quote, "'We got around to the subject of war again, "'and I said that contrary to his attitude,' you know, Goring's attitude, "'I did not think that the common people are very thankful "'for leaders who bring them war and destruction,' Goring answers the interviewer. "'Why, of course the people don't want war,' Goring shrugged. "'Why would some poor slob on a farm want to risk his life in a war "'when the best that he can get out of it is to come back to his farm in one piece?' Naturally, the common people don't want war, neither in Russia, nor in England, nor in America, nor for that matter in Germany. That is understood. But after all, it is the leaders of the country who determine the policy, and it is always a simple matter to drag the people along, whether it is a democracy or a fascist dictatorship or a parliament or a communist dictatorship. Then the interviewer replies, There's one difference, I pointed out. In a democracy, the people have some say in the matter through their elected representatives, and in the United States, only Congress can declare wars. Goring responds, Oh, that is all well and good, but voice or no voice, the people can always be brought to the bidding of the leaders. That is easy. All you have to do is tell them they're being attacked and denounce the pacifists for lack of patriotism and exposing the country to danger. It works the same way in any country. End quote that conversation in a nutshell to me sums up the difference the dichotomy between the interest of the nation state at the grand history book level and the interest of the people who collectively make up that nation state what do you get as a taxpayer for the united states as global policeman of the world policy what's in it for you and if the argument is well, you know, you help keep the defense industry alive, and the defense industry helps this country. That almost sounds like socialism. If that was any other industry besides the defense industry, most people who support the idea I just gave you wouldn't support the idea at all. If you were talking health care instead of the military, that is all of a sudden, you know, rank socialism. Now I understand defense has always been a job of the government. But as we've said in many other shows, there's no logical line defining a prudent level of defense. From a crazy, you know, overspending level of defense. Because someone can always say, listen, we're vulnerable. You're crazy. Do you want to weaken the nation? And Goring just gave you all the talking points right there in 1946. Our country is about as enthusiastic of giving up its global position of power, its ring of power, as were all the other superpowers before it. You just don't tend to find superpowers who are eager to hand the ring off to somebody else. But who does a country exist for? Does it exist for the history books or the leaders or the 1% of people who maybe make a killing, pardon the pun, on um, you know all of this global foreign policy? Or does it belong to the average people that Goring was talking about, the poor slob on a farm who at best will get out of the war the chance to come back to his farm? Who does the country exist for? And in an era of incredibly shrinking dollars and no ability now to postpone decisions that should have been handled when the problems were much smaller decades ago, we're going to have to make some tough choices. I think the fact that we're going to have to make some tough choices, even though it's tough times that mandate that we're going to have to make tough choices, is an improvement on not making tough choices at all. We may have to throw the ring of power away now, folks. Sounds like a horrible waste, doesn't it?
7: Hey, Jay, my name is Chris. I've been a, I would say, short-term listener of uh, Best of Left Podcast. Been about, like, six, eight months now. Haven't been able to become a member yet just because uh, unemployment's a bitch like that. Um, I just wanted to leave an activist call uh, to action. Uh, based on your recent little prefaces to your episodes where you warn your sensitive viewers, um, I just listened to your March 5th episode, and uh, your line about profanity literally made me chuckle as I was... Uh, walking to work, uh, which I'm still doing now. So my activist call to action um, really has to do with uh, verbiage and um, the the kind of passion and anger that comes with words. Um, For many, many years, you know, people are always saying, oh, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. Observing politics recently, it really makes me feel like that kind of sentimentality has been very damaging uh, for many, many years, because in some instances there really is just no nice way of saying some things. And, you know, I, I've become quite the fan of the Young Turks and a number of other leftist and progressive uh, media pundits, I guess they would be called. And just, you know, hearing them exert their passion without inciting any kind of uh, damaging rhetoric or violence or anything of that nature and not being able to say, fuck, shit, cock, or damn every once in a while to really kind of drive in the point without having to dance around the issues like many pol- uh, politicians do, you know, with their little double speak and being able to talk for hours without actually saying what they're actually trying to say because they're afraid of offending somebody's sentiment, uh, sentimentalities or what have you. So for you, for myself and for many others out there that are just frustrated and feeling like their mouths are taped shut because there really isn't anything nice to say sometimes about any particular issue, um, I say, ball up that passion, bring it forward. You know, don't be afraid to say what you need to say and speak from the heart. But that is a double-edged sword. We cannot incite violence or dangerous or hateful rhetoric against others, but we are in a day and age where the intent behind the words should mean more than the words themselves. And that would be my activist call to action. Uh, Jay, love the show. Please keep up the great work, pulling all these things together for us. And um, as soon as I can afford to become a member, I promise that I will. To everyone else out there listening, if this actually happens to make it on the show, keep doing whatever it is that you're doing, and don't be afraid to speak your mind. Have a good one, Jay. Hello, Jay. Uh, I recommend a a podcast for you. It's called Godless Bitches, and what it is, it's put out by the same people as the Atheist uh, Center Center of Austin. Um, What they do is they take a... Uh, podcast of of feminist issues from an atheist secular point of view it's been very interesting i don't know if you you know about it or not but it's called godless bitches and it might tie into some of the feminist uh, war on women shows that you've been doing take care bye hi jay this is elka in
14: indiana and um I just wanted to offer a suggestion. A couple of weeks ago, when you were doing the, uh, the podcast on women's justice issues, you kind of were lamenting the lack of feminist programming and, and feminist media out there. So I just wanted to suggest that you and the best of the less listeners check out a podcast called Women's Magazine. It's actually a, a show that airs on uh, KPFA out in California. It is absolutely excellent. Um, it is a feminist centered program and uh you know these are women who are tackling some some serious issues involving peace justice lgbtq rights issues race class gender the whole nine yards from a feminist lens and a womanist perspective so check that out it's called women's magazine airs on kpfk you should be able to access the uh, podcast thanks bye-bye
0: Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you would like to leave a comment, question, or activist call to action yourself to be played on the show, the number to dial is 206-202-3410. So over the past three episodes on, on this show, during the voicemails and, and comments section at the end, there's been a discussion about language and sensitivity to oppressed groups, uh, especially women, over the uh, controversy of a joke that was told on the Jimmy Dore show. And uh, you know, I, I think I think that it was it was an interesting conversation when it was opened up to beyond you know, the discussion of the joke itself, but but the use of language and and how. Uh, you know, how important it is to be careful, but how important it is to recognize that context matters and so on and so on. Uh, so I, I think it was a good conversation, but it has definitely run its course. And so today I just want to give you the, uh, the epilogue, which is to say that uh, I was very surprised to hear that uh, Jimmy Dore actually decided to dedicate about 20 minutes of his most recent episode to this discussion. So if you followed the, the, the story on this show and you wanted to hear you know, Jimmy and a roundtable of comedians discussing it and and pulling clips from Best of the Left and, and using that as a, as a jumping off point to discuss it further from their perspective, uh, then check out the March 16th episode of The Jimmy Dore Show. And uh for our purposes, I'm only going to pull about a forty five second clip of it because it's it's actually uh, Frank Conniff who who told the joke or originally he he used the phrase uh, "I hear she puts out," which is uh you know out of context is. Uh, a phrase that's offensive to women and perpetuates, uh, you know, slut shaming tactics and those sorts of things in context, it was actually a joke about Rick Santorum and not about the woman at all, but it was very, very open to misinterpretation. And, uh, and so he reacted during their conversation. And so, uh, I wanted to play that for you and then I'll come back right after that.
15: But the one thing that I would, um, you know, that I would uh, take to heart is I, is, is, I know that, that my intention in that joke was directed at Santorum and his, his insane anti-contraception, anti-women, anti-sex mm-hmm. right. thing, and the irony of that his daughter, of his daughter being that way, but I do agree that, that I think that when it comes to the children of the candidates, um You know, it's not quite fair to that, to to make them a target. And, just, and even though he right. Santorum was the target of my joke, but I did use her in the to joke. And if I if I had to do it again, I might not, just because I don't want to. You know, as a general rule, I don't want to you know i would never do a joke about obama's
0: uh daughters so those were frank's comments which i thought were just pitch perfect you know i he didn't apologize and i'm glad he didn't i didn't think he needed to and uh, you know but he reflected on this situation and had a, a you know very nuanced uh you know way of looking at it which is exactly what I said, I I wished would happen. I was just like, no more should be expected, and and no more could have been hoped for than to just kind of reflect on it and and learn from it and go from there. So I was really happy about that. And then finally, uh, Mara from Pittsburgh, who uh, Jimmy used, uh, you know, several times during our conversation, and then uh, used extensively on his own show. Uh, she called back and wanted to clarify some of her points. She felt like she was misunderstood, and so I am more than happy to give her a platform uh, to clear the air on, uh, on some misunderstandings.
6: Hi, Jay. This is Mara from Pittsburgh again. I wanted to say that you did an admirable job of representing my position in your interview with Jimmy Dore, but I think there's a few more things I need to say in my defense. So I want to make two points that are related to the fact that I completely agree with Mr. Dore that context is everything. First, I was trying to show that in this context, the words were offensive by juxtaposing it with another very similar context in which similar sorts of words would obviously be offensive. Second, I didn't say that there were any words that should never be used by a comedian or anyone else for that matter. There are numerous contexts in which slut, "bag," nigger, etc. are perfectly acceptable, and there are plenty of brilliant comedians who use them. I also like Chris Rock and The Simpsons, but as we agree, context is everything, and in the context of the bit they were doing, it was offensive. The context of the joke being made by a progressive on a progressive radio show means that I'm not angry with him or I don't hold it against him. What I was trying to do was explain why Joe from China and myself and possibly others sounded offensive in the context it was in. I do hope this helps, because I, I don't like being misunderstood. <laughs> Thanks, Jay. Keep up the good work.
0: There we go. So I will have Mara's words be the last on the subject. And and then my final note on on the whole discussion is that if you do uh, end up hearing the Jimmy Dore discussion on his show, just for context and clarity and and all of those things, I just want everyone to be uh, aware that the conversation that was recorded for his episode took place before he came on and had the conversation with me that you may have heard on the previous episode of this show. So if, if I changed his mind or tempered his uh, opinions or, or, you know, calmed him down, <laughs> perhaps, then uh, none of those changes will be reflected in uh, what you may hear on The Jimmy Dore Show. So just be aware of that. And that will do it for today. I just want to thank a few people who have donated to my climate ride. Um, I forget who I've already thanked, but to be uh, sure, I will thank Jessica Carolyn, Sean, Ben, and Alex, who have uh, all chimed in with uh, with, with generous don- donations, um, especially Ben, who has uh, taken the lead now with a $200 donation. So huge thanks to him for that, but also Alex with $100, Carolyn with $100, Jessica with $50, Sean with $20. It all adds up and has uh, springboarded me to 90% of my goal. So I only need to raise, uh, if my math is correct, uh, which I don't necessarily trust, uh, $246 to reach my goal uh, of raising $2,400 for three separate climate and uh, clean energy nonprofits who I personally know and trust. Obviously, we're a- almost there. Uh, keep the donations coming in until uh, until we hit that goal. And I will do my best to ride my bike 300 miles between New York and DC to uh, uphold my end of that bargain. So that's it for today. Of course, if you would like to support the show, become a member or make an individual donation uh, to support this work. Stay tuned into the show between episodes by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show itself, including links to all the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information is always listed in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every third day. Thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from Best of the Left. The black,
9: black, black and white Who took apart a picture that wasn't right Pitch burning on a shining sheet The only maker that you want to meet A dying man in a living room The shadow bases the floor who take you out any Just a fond farewell to a friend. It's not what I'm like.